You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Is there a relationship between severe coronary artery narrowing and insulin or TZD therapy in the management of diabetes? And is there a difference between the sexes? Joining us to discuss the role of glycemic control to cardiovascular disease is Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Endocrinology, Metabolism, and Nutrition at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, Dr. Jennifer Green. Dr. Green, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you for having me. Jennifer, let's jump into it. What is known about the relationship between glucose control and cardiovascular disease? I think this area really spurred a lot of interest. Uh, when it became clear that there was a direct relationship between blood glucose or hemoglobin A1C values and the likelihood of an individual experiencing cardiovascular complications. So, for example, in a lot of large trials, such as the EPIC trial, it was found that individuals who had even slightly elevated hemoglobin A1C levels uh, were at greater risk for cardiovascular complications than patients who had hemoglobin A1C levels, for example, less than 5%. And since we're talking about gender differences, it is important to note that in men in particular, the risk seemed to increase when their hemoglobin A1C was only modestly high. So, for example, between 5 and 6%, but the risk of cardiovascular disease was higher in both sexes when the hemoglobin A1C value was above 6 Now, we do know on a more positive note that in individuals with diabetes that when glycemic control is better, uh, that we can reduce the risk of later cardiovascular complications. So, for example, in the UKPDS trial of newly diagnosed individuals with type 2 diabetes and in the DCCT trial of uh, type 1 diabetes control, that the patients who were better controlled uh, during the active trial period were later on found to have a lesser risk of cardiovascular complications than patients who'd not had their diabetes as well controlled. But the more recent trials have really kind of confused the issue. So, for example, in Accord, Advance, and VADT, which were all designed to see if lowering glucose to very near normal or close to normal levels would reduce cardiovascular complications, we really didn't find that uh, a strategy designed to control glucose very, very intensively reduced the likelihood of cardiovascular complications. And in Accord, of course, uh, this kind of a strategy increased the death rate amongst individuals uh, who were assigned to that therapy. So although patients who have lower hemoglobin A1C values seem to have a reduced risk for cardiovascular disease, it's, it's really not clear that all patients with diabetes can benefit from treatment to try to normalize their glycemia. You know, Jennifer, I'm so glad you mentioned uh, the extension of the UK PDS and the DCCT, which clearly showed that if you treat people early and aggressively, you can get cardiovascular benefits later on, because I think we've all focused on the ACCORD trial, which, which had this negative effect with intensive glycemic control. And as you mentioned, these studies are different, different populations, different cardiovascular risk factors. And so you can't really put everything together and just say control doesn't matter, with, at least when it comes to heart disease. Let's talk about the cardiovascular effects of the different glucose-lowering medications. 
most of the information that we've obtained about the cardiovascular effects of given medications have really come from trials that weren't really designed to answer those specific questions. But there, we do know a little bit. So, for example, getting back to the UK PDS trial, uh, a group of a small group of patients who were overweight at baseline, again with newly diagnosed type two diabetes, were treated preferentially with metformin to manage their diabetes. And and during the study period, that group did seem to experience a cardiovascular benefit uh, associated with metformin therapy. And that's part of the reason that metformin is so often and recommended for patients with newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes. Aside from that, it's very difficult to find clear evidence in the literature that particular diabetes medications reduce cardiovascular risk. Uh, from the proactive trial, we do have some information about the effects of pioglitazone therapy in the management of type 2 diabetes. In that trial, uh, patients who already had coronary disease were treated with either pioglitazone or a placebo as a component of their diabetes management. And although that trial did not show a clear benefit associated with pioglitazone therapy, the patients who received that medication certainly did not appear to be at an increased risk for macrovascular complications uh, during the time that they were treated with that medication. However, the drawbacks, of course, of that class of medication include an increased likelihood of volume retention, congestive heart failure, and as we've learned more recently, fractures. So that's really limited the general usefulness of pioglitazone therapy and the routine management of high-risk type 2 patients. Let's talk about the BERRY-2D study, which you were involved with. What does that stand for? Uh, that stands for the Bypass Angioplasty Revascularization Investigation to Diabetes Trial. I'm sure glad they made a short name for it. Tell us briefly about the protocol, what was it meant to answer, and then we'll talk about the results. Sure. So this trial enrolled patients with type 2 diabetes who already had known heart problems. So they had coronary artery disease, but, but uh, had essentially stable angina or stable ischemic symptoms. And the patients were all randomized. Uh, to uh, a cardiologic intervention, which I can talk about more if you'd like me to, but their diabetes control uh, uh, was, was really the main area of endocrinologic interest. So all patients were randomized to therapy designed to either increase insulin sensitization, so for example with metformin and or TZD therapy, or an insulin-providing strategy where patients were treated with sulfonylureas and insulin if needed. And all of the patients had a hemoglobin A1C goal of less than 7%. And the main outcomes of interest were really to see if these different treatment strategies, and again, we're talking about the glucose management strategies in particular, resulted in any significant differences in rates of death or major cardiovascular events. The results actually found no significant differences in the endpoints of the all-cause mortality or the cardiovascular disease composite uh, associated with either the insulin-providing or insulin-sensitizing strategies, although interestingly, um, the group of patients who had bypass surgery as their cardiology intervention who then received the insulin sensitizing strategy did seem to have a reduction in rates of myocardial infarction compared to the alternative diabetes treatment strategy. But this was a small group of patients and wasn't the major question studied by the trial. But these are obviously intriguing results and need further study. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jennifer Green. We are discussing the role of glycemic control to cardiovascular disease in diabetes. Well, Jennifer, let's talk about the difference between the sexes. 
there's been a lot of differences between the way we treat women with heart disease compared to men. It does seem that men with diabetes seem to be benefiting from uh, all of the interventions that we make to reduce the likelihood of cardiovascular complications, but women really haven't kept up with that. And in fact, some studies suggest that uh, mortality rates in women related to coronary disease seem to be increasing. And there may be many, many reasons for that. Uh, Women may have uh, poorer control of cardiovascular risk factors. They obviously present differently with their cardiac symptoms and might be diagnosed with coronary disease later than men. They also may be managed somewhat differently when they are diagnosed. And of course, there's always the possibility that most of the treatments that we use to reduce cardiovascular risk, which do show a benefit in men, might have different effects in women. In reference to your latest scientific poster at the American Diabetes Association, is silent myocardial infarction more common in women with type 2 diabetes than men? And what do we know with respect to other cardiovascular abnormalities in women versus men? Well, this poster refers to information that we obtained from uh, the baseline data of individuals enrolled in the ACCORD trial who had not previously been known to have had a myocardial infarction. And we looked to see if perhaps women might have been more likely to have had a silent or clinically inapparent uh, myocardial infarction than men, and that that might perhaps explain some of the differences uh, in presentation and perhaps uh, subsequent complication rates seen in women. We did not see a difference, however, in this analysis in the likelihood of silent MI comparing men to women directly, although, of course, it will be interesting to see if differences emerge during the main study period. What about race or ethnicity? We did find that individuals who described themselves as Asian were the most likely to have had evidence of a silent MI, while African Americans and Hispanics, in fact, had lower odds than whites. You know, I think a lot of these sub-analysis really help us hone down and, and be able to treat patients on an individual basis, depending on the race, sex, and, and ethnicity. Well, we've talked a little bit about the ACCORD trial. What, uh, how do the ACCORD trials relate to how we should be treating patients and approach their blood pressure and lipid levels? I think it's important to note that even though the ACCORD trial uh, in general did not find a lot of very strongly positive results, These are still important questions that needed to be answered. So uh, just briefly, um, all patients enrolled in ACCORD, uh, in addition to their glycemic management, were randomized to either the blood pressure or lipid trial. And the blood pressure trial randomized individuals to either very intensive blood pressure goals of a systolic pressure less than 120 or a less aggressive goal of systolic blood pressure less than 140. And they were very successful in achieving that difference in the group enrolled. Uh, They did not find, however, that the patients treated more intensively had a a clear cardiovascular benefit associated with the more intensive treatment. And in fact, they were more likely to have problems with blood pressures that were too low had bradycardia, hyperkalemia, and perhaps some more impairment of renal function than patients treated less aggressively. So it's possible that blood pressure guidelines for people with diabetes might change as a result of that and might be relaxed slightly from the current goal of less than 130 over 80. Let's talk about the new diagnostic criteria by the ADA using the A1C. It will make um, it easier to detect individuals with modest degrees of hyperglycemia early on and hopefully uh, enforce effective interventions much earlier than we traditionally have, uh, have done. Well, for our listeners, what's your approach when you get someone that comes in, let's say their A1C is 6.2, uh, you know, that's not officially a diagnostic range for the because it's 6.5 and above. Do you treat those individuals? Well, I think that all of those individuals uh, should 
uh, undergo some lifestyle changes. And in general, it's recommended that a goal of about 5 or 10% weight loss and moderate intensi- intensity physical exercise uh, be implemented in individuals with modest degrees of hyperglycemia like that. Now, on the other hand, if an individual with a hemoglobin A1C of 6.2% has additional risk factors for progression to diabetes, such as a strong family history, or they have uh, dyslipidemia, for example, with high triglycerides or low HDL, uh, it's also reasonable to consider the addition of metformin therapy, particularly if they're obese and they're under 60 years of age. I think it boils down to, Jennifer, we need to treat patients on an individual basis and avoid complications uh, of our therapies. I'd like to thank our guest, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Endocrinology, Metabolism, and Nutrition at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, Dr. Jennifer Green. Dr. Green, thanks so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. July 10th. My lecture tour is going well. While the days have not been too tiring, I do worry for Marie and her diabetes. Dr. Hayedorn mentioned that her blood sugar was above normal right before we left. I hope we can find some answers while we are here. In 1922, Novo Nordisk's founder, Nobel Prize winning scientist August Crow, and his wife and fellow scientist Marie made a fateful visit to America to further their research and build relationships with doctors working on the earliest treatments for diabetes. July 28th. We keep hearing of this new medication that replaces the insulin that people with diabetes no longer make on their own. People who treat their diabetes can live longer and healthier lives. This could be what we've been searching for. Upon learning about the work being done at the University of Toronto, August and Marie headed north to make a connection that would change the face of diabetes treatment forever. August 11th, Dr. Hayedorn, as I believe you will be interested from both a theoretical and practical point of view, I have persuaded my husband to write to Dr. McLeod in Toronto and ask to obtain its method of manufacture so you can perform experiments with insulin in Denmark. November the 1st, success. We have replicated the process here in Kirmhaun and will be administering the first batches of insulin to patients by week's end. This could be the moment when we finally get control over Marie's diabetes and help so many others. From our first patient to our latest innovation, Novo Nordisk has been a world leader in diabetes care for nearly a century. Our patient-centric philosophy has led to many breakthroughs, including insulin analogs and easy-to-use delivery devices, and a global commitment to advancing research, education, and partnership. And our mission is the same today as it was back then, to defeat diabetes. Visit us at novonordisk-us.com.